This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. The wind is raging. The waves are taller than the boat. The night seems never-ending. When this happened before, Jesus was right there, on board, and everyone panicked anyway, and he awoke and fixed everything. Now he is nowhere to be found. Then suddenly a figure in the storm appears who seems to be walking across the water. The sight terrifies everyone. Then he calls out to you. So what do you do? Do you hunker down and go where the wind takes you? Do you grit your teeth and wait for the end? Or do you step out onto the waves and stride into the storm? That's the question we face this week on The Extraordinary Story. But first, let's pick up exactly where we left off last time and see what happened right after Jesus multiplied the loaves. In John 6, it says, When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the hills by himself. Or, as the 14th chapter of Matthew puts it, Then he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. So the people got really excited about Jesus, so much so that he feared that they would come and make him king. Why were they so excited? Because he fed them miraculously. Who knows what that made them think about him, but it's pretty clear that Jesus was not on board with what they thought of him. Mark says he compelled the crowds to get into the boat, and he himself dismissed the crowd. That sounds like the disciples were all in favor of this plan to make Jesus a king. They probably thought it was great, an opportunity to make it big, to get Jesus' mission off the ground in a major way. So Jesus learned he couldn't rely on the apostles. They weren't seeing things his way. So he himself pushed them away from the crowd, and then he himself got the crowd to disperse. This is not that different from us. We're like the crowd, and we're like the disciples in the story. We're like the crowd when we love and embrace Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. Maybe it's because he feeds us emotionally. We finally feel at peace, at rest. We were lost and now we are found. We had hemorrhage. The blood is now stopped. That's all significant and important, but it isn't the ultimate reason the Son of God became man. He didn't come to be a psychological pacifier for us. Our peace doesn't come automatically, as we shall see. The crowd wanted to make Jesus king, John said, and that's exactly what we want. We want him to give us this water always, the way the Samaritan woman put it, without having to go to the well. We want him to turn the water into wine every dinner. We want him to give us food always so we don't have to plant and grind. We want him to cure every suffering. More than that, we want him to put the bad guys in their place and give us the reins of power. We want him to accomplish our agenda. We want him to champion our politics. We're right, and we know it, and we want to bring him in as the ultimate sign that we are right. 
But Jesus refuses to be our magical waiter, bringing us water and food. He refuses to be our miracle drug, curing our diseases. And he refuses to be the most powerful testimonial at our political convention. He has to be the Lord. The apostles don't see it that way at all, though they were thrilled to see the crowds react that way. They were thrilled to see Jesus reaching this level of fame. Jesus had finally gone viral, so they wanted to stay with the people and celebrate him and make the most of that moment. We're often willing to compromise our message for more popularity too. This is fine if someone hasn't bought every last thing about Jesus yet, but it's not right to promote Jesus based on some misunderstanding. And if we're willing to do that, Jesus is not. In the story, Jesus disperses the crowd and forces the disciples into a boat. In our lives, he does the same thing. There are a lot of people who get into Jesus, but statistics show that Catholics who enter the faith through youth camps in elementary school and high school don't stay the way those who study Jesus in college stay. Catholics who enter through superficial mass movements don't stay. If their faith is based on aesthetics or on feelings, that's not enough. It's like the movie Jesus Revolution. I think I'll like the movie, and I look forward to seeing it eventually. But a friend posted on Facebook that the hippie Jesus movement it memorializes, quote, culminated in 1971, then essentially died. It's wonderful that so many youth turned away from drugs and promiscuity, at least for a while, but the movement wasn't really based on Christ. It was based on an emotional, shallow understanding of love, and was ultimately a fad. Once people were saved, they got bored and realized they had to live the real world, and the movement ended." I know that there are plenty of exceptions to that who did stay with the faith after the Jesus Revolution, but I also know exactly what he means. I've come across several heartbreaking stories of people who got excited about the faith at an emotionally charged event and made an altar call, then felt like an idiot and turned against the faith. Derek Jacobi, the British actor, talks about having done that, and someone very close to me did that too. The British actor and comedian Ricky Gervais described an experience of disbelief at age eight. He was drawing a crucifix for Sunday school when his 19-year-old brother Bob asked him, why do you believe in God? His mother shouted warningly, Bob. Gervais said, quote, and I knew. I learned it through body language. She was hiding something from me, and he was telling me the truth. It took me minutes to work it out, end quote. Julia Sweeney, who was a 1990s Saturday Night Live cast member, stopped believing despite her devout family. In TED Talks and in a film, she tells a funny story about her growing suspicions about everything her parents were telling her about God and Santa Claus, too. The turning point came, though, where... As an adult, she heard Mormon missionaries tell her what they believe. Jesus visited America after the resurrection, as is shown in the Book of Mormon, which Joseph Smith found written on golden tablets in Reformed Egyptian, tablets that could only be translated by a seer stone, which only he had. At first, she found their gullibility amusing, but then it dawned on her. The Catholic story she had been told would sound just as fantastical if she wasn't so used to it. I think both of these are recounting a situation where they got their faith from something other than their intellect. The faith for them had been something to help you feel better or to keep you in line. It wasn't something you were convicted by in your mind. I don't personally know a lot about the Asbury University prayer revival, 
but someone told me that it has a kind of a calm and steady vibe that in fact makes it seem more like a real work of the Holy Spirit. St. Ignatius in his discernment rules talked about how frantic urgency is never a sign of God's presence, but a calm, peaceful steadiness is. The fact that the Asbury Prayer Revival was at a university is probably a really good sign. When the faith gets connected to an intellectual grounding, it lasts. If it's just connected with fun and fellowship, its roots don't always stay. Asbury University President Kevin Brown said, quote, Since the first day, there have been countless expressions and demonstrations of radical humility, compassion, confession, consecration, and surrender to the Lord. We are witnessing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. End quote. Crystal Brody, who's an associate professor of English there, is a Catholic. She said that the sight has almost moved her to tears of seeing students suddenly kneeling together arm in arm. She said, there's nothing fancy, nothing loud, nothing boisterous. Classes are continuing as normal. And to see all these young people in reverent worship quiet, giving God the glory, makes me so happy as a Catholic, as a mother, and as a teacher, end quote. So there's nothing wrong with revivals per se. What is a problem is a superficial revival. What is a problem is the kind of urgency that this crowd felt to make Jesus king right now. As Jesus said in the parable of the sower, those revivals have the character of the seed that shoots up in excitement and then gets scorched in the sun. Jesus actively works against that. He doesn't want superficial followers who are excited in a moment. Jesus isn't in the frantic excitement of a crowd or the mass adulation of a mob. He isn't in chaos. He's the calm beneath the chaos. The apostles are about to learn that in a new way when they get on the boat. But first, Jesus abandons them and goes off to pray. This is what Jesus is always doing, and St. John Chrysostom explains why. Quote, For what purpose does Jesus go up the mountain? To teach us that solitude and seclusion are good. When we are to pray to God, we find Jesus continually withdrawing into the wilderness. There he often spends the whole night in prayer. This teaches us earnestly to seek such quietness in our prayers as the time and place may afford. For the wilderness is the mother of silence. It is calm and a harbor, delivering us from all turmoil. Quote. Jesus is calm in the face of the frantic crowds and excited disciples, and he goes alone to connect with the calm at the heart of existence, God. So the apostles push off in the boat into the evening, and we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 14. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was many furlongs distant from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, have no fear. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, bid me come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, 
O man of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So now we see another aspect of why Jesus wanted to be alone. He sends the crowds away and sends the apostles across the lake. Yes, he needs to be alone to pray, but he also needs his people to be alone to see how much they need him. And they soon learn. A storm, a windstorm, overcomes the apostles' boat, which is tossed about by the waves in some versions of the story, while the wind was against it. The gospel says the boat was beaten by the waves, and the verb there actually means that the boat was torturously beaten by the waves. It's a very vicious verb. The terrible storm lasted all night with no sign of rescue from Jesus. In the gospel, Jesus doesn't appear until the fourth watch between 3 and 6 a.m., at dawn or just before it. That means the apostles have to fight the storm in the dark alone. Even when Jesus shows up, Jesus doesn't quiet the wind. At first, he merely says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. But there's a lot more going on here. That it is I that Jesus speaks from the storm in the Greek is I am, the name God gave himself in the burning bush and which was repeated significantly in Isaiah as a singular formulation indicating divinity, indicating God. And then he is literally walking across the water, which is what happened at the very dawn of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters, is how Genesis has it sometimes translated a mighty wind over the face of the waters. And this formless void is what Bishop Barron points out is the tohu vabohu in Hebrew. It's the tohu vabohu that the ark traveled over, and it's reminiscent of the Red Sea that Moses traveled through. God is the master of the water, trampling the waves, as Job put it. Jonah had to be tossed from his boat into the tohu vabohu to quiet it. Peter, when he first encountered the Lord's mastery of the sea on his boat, said, Go away, for I am a sinful man. Now he sees that this is literally Jesus walking on the water and professing his divinity, and his answer is totally different. Lord, if it is really you, tell me to come to you across the water. That Lord, spoken by Peter, is a second profession of the divinity of Christ. Jesus is not the tohu vabohu. Jesus is the great calm that encircles the tohu vabohu. Think about it. What's under the stormy sea? The lake bottom, which will remain unchanged for thousands of years. What's over the stormy sea? Well, above the clouds are the stars that never change. What's all around the stormy sea? The hills and shores that will remain unchanged also. God is even more solid than each of these things. God is not on the surface of things. He is the bedrock of reality. He's not part of the disorder of the ever-changing world that swirls around us. He is the fundamental truth that will not change. And what he is whispering is, take courage, I am, do not be afraid. We are so much smaller and less than God, and our world is so limited that when we search for God, it's not like looking for a needle in a Kansas haystack. It's like trying to find Kansas in the haystack and the needle. We're looking for something that is so large that it is the context in which all these other things exist. The answer is clear in the readings. God is there in your life, and he is the source of common serenity, but he is terrifying sometimes. So this reading is obviously reminiscent of that earlier storm we read about, but the differences are instructive. 
Before, Jesus was with them while they were struggling. If the ship went down, he would be going down with the ship. So they could have figured that the ship wasn't going to go down. Before, all they had to do was wake him up. But now he's not there at all. He's off on some mountaintop somewhere praying. Maybe this is meant to show what life is like when Jesus absents himself from our lives. It's not an ache or a wound in this case like it was with the woman with the hemorrhage. Now it's a chaotic swirl of primal forces. Scholars calculate the apostles endured the storm for hours before Jesus arrived. They had just seen Jesus solving their problems with the food for the people. Now they're experiencing exactly the opposite. He isn't handing out favors through his hands. He's forcing them to see how hopeless the situation is in their hands. Not only will Jesus not be the political Messiah serving their agenda, not only will he not be a waiter bringing everlasting bread and water serving their desires, he will be nowhere to be found when the going gets tough. The lesson is that you have to be willing to let go of everything else in order to properly follow Jesus Christ, even the warm, reassuring feeling of closeness with Jesus Christ himself. And notice what happens when he does come to them. He isn't an angelic vision of rescue. He's a terrifying figure. If you think about it, he must have been lit by lightning in order to be seen walking toward them in the dark. He doesn't bring an oasis of calm and peace. He seems to be one with the storm, the face of the storm, the center of the storm, revealed by the storm, with the storm, of the storm, as the storm. Psalm 77's language, I think, applies here to Jesus walking on the water and calling out, Your thunderous voice was in the whirlwind. Your flashes lighted up the world. The earth was moved and trembled. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, but the trace of your steps was not seen. End quote. If this is a dark night of the soul, then Jesus in the dark night appears part of the problem at first instead of the solution. This is the kind of disorientation necessary to see Jesus for who he really is. And this is going to be his modus operandi going forward. Jesus will comfort us in terrifying ways. The transfiguration, the crucifixion, the last judgment. He'll be a lamb for us, but a lamb that looks like it was slain. He'll be a good shepherd, but one who has to lay down his life for his sheep. Christianity isn't a comfort blanket that calms our nerves. Instead, it's a hair shirt that irritates our nerves at first. We know physiologically that stimulants cause relaxation by our counteraction against them. This might be true in the spiritual life that Jesus is proposing, where he calms us by making us look directly at our troubles and walk in his hard solutions. Peter, I think, has the right response. He doesn't ask Jesus to quiet the storm or to come to him. He asks Jesus to call him forward into the storm. Then we meet Jesus not in our boat on his shore, but in the actions we do together, or in other words, in our love. And we lose him when we lose faith and hope, when we look at the water and the winds and judge them greater than Jesus. Let me describe this with a personal example that's going to be intentionally vague because each involves other people. But it was a couple years ago that I was hit with a severe work crisis, the hardest of my life. I wanted it to end, and I prayed that it would end, but it didn't. Instead, it was joined by a severe spiritual crisis, again, literally the worst I'd had in my life. At the same time came the biggest family crisis in my memory, 
And months later came a severe medical crisis, the worst again of my life. At the same time, I was discovering Father William Watson's 40 Weeks program of confronting your past with Jesus. I was essentially learning how to walk toward and with Jesus. And that's what I did. I kept putting one step in front of the other on the waves, straining against the wind, learning that Jesus doesn't make storms go away. He helps you move through them with him. You have all kinds of options. You can mask the pain by shutting down, turning off, getting lost in some addiction to make it go away. You can check out and flee from the pain. I'd tried those options before, truth be told. This time I didn't, thank God. And nothing about it was fun or simple or easy, but it was astonishing. It just worked out. It's also worth noting that since Peter's boat is a symbol of the church, not only is this a personal lesson telling each of us how to weather life's storms, it's a lesson for the church and each of its members. The fathers of the church say the storm represents two different forces. Persecution is a mighty wave that rises against the boat, says Augustine. Today's Christians are persecuted as never before, being murdered for the faith all over the world. But St. Hilary points out a second force. This is a force from within. We're also, quote, tossed by the spirit of the Antichrist and by the troubles of the world, end quote. We talked about three kinds of storms three popes mentioned last time when we talked about the storm in the boat. One was the COVID storm where Francis was praying, are you sleeping, Lord? The other were the storms that John Paul faced as secular ideologies took over his country and hijacked his neighbors. His answer was to hope in Christ. But I also mentioned Pope Benedict, who said that the church itself was being rocked by doctrinal changes. I want to expand on that one here because uh, I came across some amazing words, or I remembered some amazing words and had reason to post them on our media website at Benedictine College. Words of Cardinal Ratzinger shortly before he became Pope Benedict. It's long, but let me read it. Quote, Think of how much Christ suffers in his own church. How often is the holy sacrament of his presence abused? How often must he enter empty and evil hearts? How often do we celebrate only ourselves without even realizing that he is there? How much filth there is in the church, and even among those who in the priesthood ought to belong entirely to him? How much pride, how much self-complacency? What little respect we pay to the sacrament of reconciliation where he waits for us, ready to raise us up whenever we fall. Lord, your church often seems like a boat about to sink, a boat taking on water on every side. In your field, we see more weeds than wheat. The soiled garments and face of your church throw us into confusion. Yet it is we ourselves who have soiled them. It is we who betray you time and time again, after all our lofty words and grand gestures. When we fall, we drag you down to earth, and Satan laughs, for he hopes that you will not be able to rise from that fall. He hopes that, being dragged down in the fall of your church, you will remain prostrate and overpowered, but you will rise again. You stood up, you arose, and you could easily raise us up. Save and sanctify your church. Save and sanctify us all. End quote. Wow, that's the leader of the church talking about the evil in the church. More weeds than wheat, he said. It sure seems like that sometimes. 
But that's the church today. It's like Peter and the apostles. We have become the playthings of the storm, which for us is the deadly culture built by relativism, a culture whose darkness we toy with to our shame. We have been driven far from the safe and sure path Christ set us on. We fear the storm and we fear him when we see him there coming toward us. This is what he wants to hear from Catholics today, too. Think of the possible responses to the waves and wind, the persecution and dissent. We can hide from them, give in to them, or go to meet them. Hiding from them doesn't make them go away, and giving in means being swept along by lies. Pope Benedict XVI said, What all those ideologies have in common is that they make our own ego and desires the center of our lives. Giving in to the storm means putting our true hope and power in politics and judging the church harshly according to our political core beliefs. Or it means playing with sexuality as if it's something we owned and carelessly marring ourselves and others in the process. Or it means making money the center of our life, giving dribs and drabs to the poor and to the church while lavishing money on ourselves to the point of mounting debt. Or it means letting our doubts about the faith run wild without ever trying to pull them in. Stepping out into the storm means praying, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come to you across the water, then advancing step by step toward him. It's often noted that the gospel spells out where Peter goes wrong when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he started to sink. We shouldn't dwell on disaster either, but we do. We obsess about how powerful the enemy is, how dangerous the persecutors are, how damaged the boat is. We shouldn't spend our time sounding the depths of the abyss of secularism and measuring the heights of the waves of opposition. But that's what we spend most of our time doing. It's time to give ourselves to Christ recklessly instead. But you know what? It isn't reckless at all. It's what every one of us knows with or without faith. Everything will be all right. Everything will be all right is the natural fallback position of mankind. I'll never forget the day years ago that my teenage daughter at the time came to me with blood coming out of her eyes. She looked like a horror movie and she was very upset. I was inwardly horrified too, but I said, relax, everything is going to be all right. Because I somehow knew that was true. And when I said it, we both calmed down. Everything will be all right. Andra tutto bene is what Italians from their balconies proclaimed every night as the COVID-19 crisis descended on Italy. It's what New Yorkers scrawled on a rock on the banks of the Hudson River near Brooklyn Bridge after 9-11. It was written on the walls after Hurricane Katrina. It's what people in Joplin, Missouri said during the tornado. As an 86-year-old grandmother of 19 at St. Joseph's Senior Home in Woodbridge, New Jersey, which was hard hit by COVID, she said everything will be all right, and then she lived. Many others remember it as the last words of the ones they lost, but they somehow knew things would be all right anyway. During COVID, they lit the Rio de Janeiro Christ the Redeemer statue with a message in Portuguese, everything will be all right. Signs appearing from Atlanta, Georgia to Chicago proclaimed during COVID that everything would be all right. You hear the same thing all over the world in every language. Everything will be all right. And Father Sergio Arguello Vences says, it is what Our Lady tells us over and over again as we are praying the rosary. Everything will be all right. Whenever you find tragedy, even unfixable tragedy, you'll find one person saying to one another, don't worry, it will be all right. 
For human beings, this hope is an absolute necessity. We can't tolerate a world without hope. So we say everything will be all right, even when it does not appear to be even remotely true. But sometimes it always feels true. Somehow the comfort the mom offers her child is not empty, wishful thinking. Somehow everything will be all right sounds comforting, even when it's somebody's last words, maybe especially when it's somebody's last words. Situations like the storm with Jesus on the water explain why. Suddenly we know everything will be all right, not because we have the ability to make everything right, but because we lack the ability to get into trouble too big for Jesus Christ to solve. Everything will be all right is almost a proof of the existence of God. If there is no God, then the universe wasn't designed by love. It emerged from chaos. If there is no God, there is no calm surrounding the tohu vabohu. The atoms swirling in our bodies and the comets streaking through the air are all part of a greater tohu vabohu that will fade into in the end. If there is no God, not only is there no reason to suppose things will be all right, an intelligent person should expect them to get worse. The principle of maximum entropy is dragging us into the mire. But if there is a God, I can say, don't worry, it will be all right in the middle of a pandemic or a battle or a storm or as the last thing I ever say into a ventilator. God is in charge. His way will win in the end. He is there for us above and beyond even death. Lord, if it is really you, tell me to come to you across the water. I pray it all the time. Lord, if it is really you, tell me to walk to you through the wreckage of souls and bodies and lost faith and failed dreams in the 21st century. And he'll say, fear not, I am. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Everything will be all right. St. Catherine of Siena said to never complain because everything, good or bad, comes from love and all is ordained for the salvation of man. St. Thomas More, shortly before being beheaded, told his daughter cheerfully, nothing can come but that which God wills. Julia of Norwich perhaps said it most simply of all, all manner of things shall be well. There's only one place where God is powerless in today's reading, in the face of human freedom. When Peter is walking across the water to him, Jesus can't make him trust him. Peter has the freedom to fear the storm more than he trusts God. We have the freedom to reject the all-powerful one, the master of nature and supernature, their creator and king. We face the same choices in our lives, embrace his love or reject it, believe in his power or get swallowed by life's storms. I started this podcast to help myself and to help you to take one step after another, walking straight toward Jesus Christ. Politics is important, vital, economics is too, so is marriage and sexual morality. But right now, the most important thing for us to do is to put one foot in front of the other, focusing on Jesus Christ and his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.